My guest today is James Corbett. James is an award-winning investigative journalist who began the Corbett Report website in 2007 as an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. His videos have garnered over 50 million views on YouTube alone. Uh, one of the principal themes of this podcast and of other projects I've worked on is that, uh, is that of the divergence between official truth and truth on the ground. In short, what's on the label is very often not what's in the box. To know what's in the box, you actually have to lift up the lid and examine the contents. As we record this, the pandemic lockdowns are beginning to be loosened in many countries or regions within countries. And as might be expected in a fog of war time when extreme measures are taken, there's been a particularly large disconnect between official statements and the underlying reality. Those statements could be related to data, to models of how the virus was expected to spread under certain conditions, or they could be disconnects between executive orders and how people actually behave. One of these disconnects can be uh, intentional sometimes or complex, but at other times it seems pretty clear what's going on and why. You live in Japan, and I want to get into the response taken there, but first tell me why you think the Japanese government was so slow to admit that they even had a COVID problem. Well, actually, Japan is an interesting case in all of this, because I think while almost every power structure in the world had a uh, an, uh, an incentive to make this crisis seem as bad as possible in order to accrue as much power for the ruling uh, oligarchs as possible, Japan actually had a reverse incentive because of the Tokyo 2020 Summer Olympic Games, which obviously were scheduled to take place just a couple months from now in Tokyo, uh, obviously not going ahead, although Japan did not want to admit that for a very long time because, as always, billions of dollars are invested in these games over the course of the better part of a decade, preparing for them and preparing facilities and uh, and basically preparing uh, for the economic inflow that would come from such holding such games, or at least that's the theory. So Japan actually tried for the better part of a month after all these other countries started locking down to continue pretending that the Summer Olympic Games were going to go ahead as planned with international visitors, etc. Obviously, those plans got derailed, but for the first month or so, while all the other nations were locking down, Japan was pretending it was all business as usual. And it's interesting to note that there has been some political scandal, um, at least a, a little bit of that generated here in, J in Japan domestically, because people were pointing and saying, look, the Abe government wasn't taking this seriously and they weren't testing people. They were under testing for COVID-19 and all of this because they didn't want to disrupt the Olympic Games, which would indicate you would think if this was a real pandemic that posed a real threat to public health, and the government was downplaying it for these political reasons, you would expect there would be this tidal wave of deaths, that Japan would be this this prime example of this is what happens when you don't lock down properly. But in fact, actually, that tidal wave of death failed to materialize. Although Japan has under-tested compared to other countries, uh, a very small per percentage of the population has been tested, even at this point, even after the Olympic Games were cancelled and the Japanese government had to admit that uh, there was some sort of problem that they were going to have to test for. Uh, even after all of that, there still has not been an overwhelming of the public health system here, the hospitals, uh, excess amount of deaths. So whatever happened, Japan has completely avoided it. But it is interesting to, to see that. And it's also interesting for me personally, having the perspective that I have living here in Japan, where there we were not being told to panic. We were not being told to even really think too much about this pandemic as, as it was developing, because, again, the incentives were buttered on the other side of the bread for the Japanese government than for, say, in America or Canada or much of the rest of the world. And so I got to see the propaganda that was being placed in front of the American public, the Canadian public, the European public, uh, from a distance and seeing the, the disconnect between the official government messages. And that is a good way of realizing, sort of taking yourself out, out of the 
uh, out of the direct placement of that propaganda and seeing it from that third person perspective where, oh, okay, this government is saying this, this government is saying that. Well, they can't both be correct. Something's going on here. They're, they're, it's, it's like they're trying to manipulate this reality. So it was an interesting position to be in for me personally. Yeah, I would imagine the propaganda here was was very strong and it was almost like a switch was turned and all of the sudden every radio station, every TV station, posters up everywhere with a, a unified message about staying home and saving lives um, to go along with the legal uh, regime of, you know, of, of the lockdowns themselves and the shutting down of, of businesses. Um there in Japan, I imagine when, you know, once they finally admitted that this was what was going on, there had to have been pressures to to lock down the country nonetheless. Uh, internationally, yes, there has been a large cry over the seeming lack of response from Japan. As I say, they have under-tested compared to pretty much every other country. Um, and at, when the Olympics were canceled, exactly as I did predict, and I don't think I had to go very far out on a limb on this, but exactly as I predicted, the very same day that the Olympics were uh, formally postponed was the very same day that the Tokyo governor came out and started warning about a virus hotspot that was developing in Tokyo with the message that if you guys don't behave and start staying home more, we're going to have to lock down. That was the threat at any rate. Um, but it's interesting that that threat never exactu actually eventuated. Uh, a week or so after that, they did declare a state of emergency in Tokyo and, and uh, Osaka and five other prefectures here in Japan where there were these virus hotspots developing. And then a week or so after that, they did declare a national state of emergency. But it is interesting to note, and I did note this in a recent video that I did, that that, in fact, actually uh, gives almost no real power to the government to do anything special. There was no lockdown that was legally enforceable here. And that is something that the Japanese media and the government and everyone has been at pains to stress, that the Japanese constitution essentially ties the Japanese government's hands in this case. They can't lock down their citizens because of the post-war constitution, obviously drafted up during the American administration, post-war, uh, after Second World War, uh, signed in 1947. It gives, it enshrines a lot of rights and individual freedoms to the Japanese public. The line that is given, at any rate, is that this, of course, was done because the Americans and the rest of the world were concerned about the aggressive military imperialistic nature of old imperial Japan and the aggression that they had waged around the world for the first half of the 20th century. So they had to tie, tie the Japanese government's hands and make sure that they couldn't uh, be a, a, an authoritarian government. And one of the ways that they did this was supposedly to create the types of clauses in the Constitution that would prevent the very type of lockdown scenario that the rest of the world is implementing right now. And the Japanese government, for its part, during this crisis, has gone along with that and said, we can't legally enforce any sort of lockdown here. There was requests for people to stay home. There was requests for businesses to shut down, but they were not legally enforceable. And in fact, there was something of a minor scandal um, with regards to some pachinko parlors here in uh, in Tokyo. For people who don't know, pachinko is just, uh, I don't know, a type of gambling, almost like a, a VLT or that kind of thing, but not, not exactly. It's I don't know. I don't know how to explain it, but at any rate, it's a gambling type of thing that people lots of metal in. balls bouncing around, metal balls bouncing around, lots and you, of sounds. It, exactly, and that's the. I've been in a pachinko parlor exactly once in my entire time in Japan, and it was uh, for ten seconds, and even that was too much. It is an insult of sound and sight, and just horrible. But at any rate, some people enjoy it. Uh, pachinko parlors, I think quite obviously associated with Japanese organized crime, um, one way or another, uh, being gambling institutions, gambling establishments. Um, and there were some pachinko parlors that were refusing to shut down in Tokyo, and this was something of a minor scandal. Um, essentially, social pressure was brought to bear, and eventually they all did uh, voluntarily shut down. But again, there was no legal enforcement even possible there. And again, that is another interesting sort of third-person perspective that I'm getting, again, watching what's happening in the U.S. and Canada and other places where the government, even sometimes explicitly saying 
that, well, we don't know exactly what the constitutional nature of this is, but we're going to rule that, you know, non-essential services must shut down. And I, I say that, for example, in the context of uh, the New Jersey governor, um, Phil Murphy, who was being interviewed by uh, Tucker Carlson of, uh, back in April. And Carlson was pressing on that point. He said, now the Bill of Rights, as you well know, protects Americans' right, enshrines their right to practice their religion as they see fit and congregate together to assemble peacefully. By what authority did you nullify the Bill of Rights in issuing this lockdown order? How do you have the power to do that? And Murphy responded by saying, that's above my pay grade, Tucker. So yeah, completely I, I, punting. I remember that. It was a absolutely astounding when that happened. And in general, astounding to me how much the Bill of Rights was revealed to be nothing but a piece of paper in the face of massive pressure coming from the people and uh, coming from the government in the form of them basically doing whatever they wanted to do. I don't I'm not a lawyer, but it's very hard to square a the First Amendment with what happened and the idea of no uh, no abridgment and the right to peaceably assemble with an absolute prohibition on those exact activities. Um, you know, there's suppose there's some argument about state versus federal, but I thought that that was resolved and that the Bill of Rights re- applied to all of them. But you know, without getting into the weeds of of those particular laws, I think it's it's clear and, and interesting that the extent to which the government decided to restrict their own activities in relation to what they were legally or constitutionally obligated to do didn't really have much to do, it seemed to me, with what the actual constitution said. And yet there, for whatever reasons, they did decide to respect that constitution. I wonder if you think that that has anything to do with the culture there, or whether it was just an accident of not getting into the game of lockdowns early and then, you know, and then that momentum carrying forward. I think there is a political calculus to this. And one of them, as you say, may be a face-saving procedure retroactively for the Abe government here, which, as I say, did receive at least a little bit of uh, kickback from the public here. Uh, saying that you're covering up what's really going on with this crisis because of the Olympics. So retroactively, if they say, well, we can't lock down anyway, so it doesn't really make a difference whether we declare a state of emergency or not, that could be sort of a political wash for the Abe administration and kind of cover their their rear end. But more fundamentally, I think this is about one of the uh, goals of the Abe uh, government since it came in several years ago has been to alter the Japanese constitution. That has been an explicit and stated goal of Abe over the past several years, uh, specifically with regards to Article 9 of the Japanese constitution. Uh, it's uh, famously the article that actually enshrines the renunciation of war. Uh, obviously, again, this being written in post-war Japan and people being concerned about Japanese military aggression, it is, I think, think the only country in the world with an actual constitutional clause prohibiting them from having an, a standing military force to be used offensively. Um, and that is taken fairly seriously by the Japanese people, and that's why it has been extremely difficult for uh, the Japanese government in the 21st century to adjust to the war of terror politics that has been instituted that has given the shot in the arm to every police state and uh, military aggression around the world, uh, the Japanese government has waded into that by, for example, supplying non-military, non-offensive support to missions in Iraq and, and things like that. But they can't provide any actual military offensive support because the constitution ties their wrists uh, on this. So the Abe government has been, from its inception, trying to get change that and reinterpret Article 9 or change the, ultimately, I think, change the wording is what they're going to try to do to allow, at the very least, support, military offensive support for allies around the world and things things of that nature. Uh, so I see part of the political calculus here with saying, we'd love to, you know, lock down like the rest of the world is doing, but we can't do it because of this pesky constitution. If only we could change the constitution. And I think this is trying to introduce this idea to the Japanese public in a way that will seem to a lot of the public like it's their own idea. Well, well, we need to change this constitution. Look at this mortal threat to public health. Uh, The problem with that, I think the backfire in that is that 
there really hasn't been this tidal wave of deaths, as I said, that everyone was predicting. So I'm not sure there is that sense of urgency in the public to change the Constitution, but at least it has entered it into the public discourse that, well, why don't we have the power to lock down? Every other country has that power. How come we can't do that? So it has at least entered that into the public conversation. And I think that is going to be the ultimate end goal of where this is heading is to not say that this is a strength of the Japanese system, but to say it's a failing or a weakness of some sort that needs to be corrected. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, I suppose whether whether or not they amend that and and whatever is going on in the other um, locations of the world where there were the lockdowns, there's a, then always the question of to what extent people are actually going along with those policies. Um, there in Japan, to what extent did people go along with the non sort of non legally binding, but nonetheless strongly suggested uh, recommendations from the government, other than the pachinko parlors, which you mentioned, right? Well, it is it's difficult for me to say generally with regards to the country, because I live very far from Tokyo. And obviously, a lot of the uh, the concern about the potential spread of the virus was in Tokyo, where there was at least claimed to be some sort of virus hotspot. So I'm sure it was a different reaction there. But what I can say about my day-to-day reality here, very far from uh, Tokyo, is that uh, there was some some lip service given to the, some of the new rules and things. And they have instituted some of the precautions that I'm sure have been instituted elsewhere, the vinyl curtains in front of the cash register and uh, that sort of thing. And the the footprints on the floor in the store about stand here when waiting in line, which no one actually observes. Uh, I guess the social distancing as a word, an ing- anglicized a katakana Japanese English word, has been introduced to the Japanese vocabulary. I now hear people saying social distancing. <laughs> uh, so that has been introduced to the vocabulary. But again, I don't see that being enacted, at least where I am. Uh, restaurants and things never never closed here. Um, people were probably staying home more, more so back uh, in April, May. But uh, again, that that state of even the st- declared state of emergency, which legally meant nothing, was list- lifted a few weeks ago, and life where I am, at any rate, has completely turned returned to normal. The only visible sign of it at this point is there are more people p- wearing masks than usual. But this is Japan. There are always some people wearing masks. It's just a question of, you know, the percentage of people that are that are wearing them. So really, at least, again, far from Tokyo, I can't speak to what's going on in places like that. But where I am, very little has changed. And although I think they are trying to inculcate some sort of ideas in the public imagination, and that is being reflected in the words and things that are being used now, but I, I'm not sure it's really stuck with the public at this point. Right, right. Yeah, here um, there was a very strong reaction from people in terms of their behavior and um, those stores that stayed open also did the things with the circles on the floor and whatnot. It was always interesting to see which places chose to just use kind of masking tape as a, you know, we're not expecting this to go on and which other ones uh, came up with official branded logoed, you know, circles that they pasted on the floor and more elaborate uh, glass panels in front of the cashier as opposed to the kind of plexiglass jerry-rigged thing that my local cafe did um, to, you know, to provide that kind of screen. Um, but I, I want to move on now from the the topic of the pandemic and lockdowns to this broader idea of a disconnect between the official and the real. Uh, you spent many years investigating information that contradicts official truths, or at the very least shows that there's much more to the story than we've been told. Sometimes this takes the form of conspiracy theories. Sometimes these theories turn out to be actual facts. Uh, if, if you were to take the 10,000-foot view Do you see any general patterns or trends emerge in terms of these disconnects between what's claimed to be happening and what's actually going on in the world around us? Well, let's stick to that question of the constitutionality or lack thereof of various actions, because I think that that's one good way to get a handle on that disconnect that you're talking about. And in fact, there's an interesting example from Canada specifically, that I did cover at the time that took place at the Toronto G20 about a decade ago, where we saw an incredible abrogation of basic 
constitutionally enshrined Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, the supposed rights given to citizens that were completely abrogated in the duration, at least during that uh, G20 conference that was held in Toronto in June 2010. And, uh, for example, uh, filmmaker uh, Dan Dix did an excellent overview of this in a documentary that he did, Into the Fire, where he documented a lot of these abuses. But there's some famous uh, confrontations that that came out of that. For example, there was a... uh, uh, an activist by the name of Paul Figueres, who was attempting to enter, or uh, I don't think he was even entering, but going near the area where that was being cordoned off as part of this uh, G20 conference. And at the time, they were saying that anywhere, anyone approaching within five meters of the, the ultimate perimeter of this conference would, would be subjected to searches and blah, blah, blah. Um, the implication being, if you were outside of that five meter radius, then then you would be fine. Uh, that was not the case, evidently. Um, and there is video con- uh, of a confrontation that Paul Figueres, this one of the protesters uh, who was just in the area of this perimeter, uh, with uh, a member of the York Pol- Regional Police, Sergeant Mark Charlebois. And in this confrontation, they were uh, he, uh, Paul Figueres had a backpack on that the police in the area wanted to search. And he said, no, I'm not going to let you search that. This is part of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You do not have the right to search this. And he said, yes, we do. He said, uh, but this is Canada. We have these rights. And uh, Sergeant Charbois actually says, this ain't Canada right now. There is no civil rights here in this area, which is a remarkable statement um when you think about it and it it's on it's on video you can go you can see this uh this entire exchange uh quite remarkable uh and that was the the rule of the day at least there in downtown toronto that these protesters were being told no you we are going to search your bag or you are going to head back that way you cannot come in this area which again was not within that five meter perimeter that had been announced so Um, It took five years until finally an appeal court finally admitted that his, uh, Paul Figueres' rights had been violated. But what does that really mean? Uh, Ultimately, five years later, he is vindicated. But on that day, in that space, that police officer, that law enforcement official was able to declare, this isn't Canada and you do not have rights. And he was the guy with the gun in that situation and with all the police backup. So he won. His argument won. And Paul uh, Figueres' rights were denied on that day, as well as many, many others. And as I say, if you watch Into the Fire, you'll see many examples of that. But that that speaks to, I think, the way that you started this conversation, referring to these constitutions as just pieces of paper, raising the specter of Bush Jr., who, of course, did famously declare that the Constitution is just a goddamn piece of paper. Stop shoving it in my face. Well, you know what? He's not wrong. It is just a piece of paper. These are just pieces of paper that are used as essentially instruments to to be wielded as necessary for political purposes and completely dis- discarded or disregarded when it is no not not in the interests of the power structure to 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 abide by it and the instances like that at the Toronto G20 put that in crystal clear perspective where at, the police officer can just declare no this isn't Canada and you don't have rights Oh, okay. Well, I guess so. I guess maybe five years from now, maybe some appeals court will will rule in my favor. But that doesn't change the on-the-ground lived reality here. And I think that that sort of incident speaks to what we're really dealing with here, which is uh, the fiction of government, the fictions by which government presumes to rule over people by some sort of piece of paper that gives some sort of authority to certain people to do certain things, but we'll just disregard it when we when it's necessary, or that's above my pay grade. Don't ask me where this, this right that I have to shut down non-essential services come from. That's above my pay grade. And maybe five years from now, maybe there will be some court ruling that that was against your rights. But what does that matter to you now when you're losing your business as it's happening? So that, I think, speaks to this fundamental disconnect that exists between the power structure and the myths about the power structure and the myths about government there to protect you and and to be your friend and all of this that we're given to basically placate the public. Because ultimately, I think the political structure that exists is just a type of uh, a, a way of putting a bottle or containing the natural human urge to revolt against 
power structures and oppressive power institutions, the establishment generally, whatever form that takes in any given generation, there's always been that tension. Usually in past, the distant past, that has been quelled by literal just brute force of I am the king with the lords and uh, his vassals and you will abide by us or you will be put down. Uh, but in our enlightened modern age, we like to think, oh no, it's the consent of the will of the people to be governed by uh, this this power that's temporarily in charge, but we can throw them out at any given election and they abide by these rules that are enshrined in this piece of paper, which isn't worth the paper that it's written on, ultimately. It does not seem like that, certainly, though there is something that seems to hold power in check nonetheless in the Western democracies, despite it only being a piece of paper and despite those in power often having the ability to, I think the expression I've heard is, make the process the punishment, which was certainly the case with that person who, you know, five years later got cleared, um, you know, that the process was the punishment there. But there, there is nonetheless something that, you know, that prevents straight up dictatorship. And certainly right now with the, you know, with the lockdowns, we did see the beginnings of a certain amount of mass resistance that might have been an indicator of that, though I was shocked at how little of the, that there was and how long it took to ramp up. But um, you know, in, in the in the absence of the Constitution ultimately having that much meaning, what do you what do you think are the forces that constrain uh, the government, and to what extent are people free to just go about their business despite the fact that the government has declared that they can't do certain things? Well. This goes back to what I was saying about placating the public with these myths. Um, it is, I think. The case that, that, in fact, this is something that I keep going back to. I have a regular video series I do called Propaganda Watch, where I examine the different types of propaganda that are being foisted on the public to try to basically engineer consent towards one agenda or another. But something that I keep going back to is the very f existence of this propaganda proves that the real power actually lies with the people. Uh, you would not be propagandized too. The uh, the establishment, the forces uh, that are in charge of this process would not be so interested in investing time and money and effort and energy into propagandizing the public, into making them believe this or that narrative, if what you believed was not important. But it clearly is. What you believe and what the narratives that you are acting on or the narratives that are telling you not to act in certain situations are the narratives that, uh, that control and placate the public. But it also speaks to the fact that if you had a different narrative, a different perspective, then that actually showed this power, this ruling power in a different light, you would presumably be compelled to, to act in a different way. And if enough people were also uh, seeing that from the same perspective, there's nothing that a, a power structure can do uh, against a million people rising up. There's something they can do when it's one at a time or a few people here and there, and they can be marginalized and dismissed. But when millions of people are motivated, they will be able to overthrow any oppressive power structure that, that could be thought of, at least in our current time, although technologies are coming along that I'm sure could automate a lot of the process of controlling the public, and that's something that does concern me. But at least for the time being, no, the general will of the population is still, I think, the ultimate check. Uh, it's not about constitutional checks or Supreme Court or things like that, um, vagaries that, yes, sometimes, again, I think to the extent that those things do function, uh, like the people imagine the myth of government tells them it functions, it is only to keep people invested in that system for the precise reason that I state, that if people stop believing in the system as it's been presented to them, they will revolt against it, and there's nothing that the power structure can do to really con control or contain a widespread revolt. Um, that's why I think ultimately the, the real check on power comes from the people themselves. It's just that most people don't even realize that. They don't realize that this incredible coordinated concerted effort to propagandize the public is being done because what the public believes is exceptionally important. I think that uh, that gets to why we saw at least here the 
extraordinary what looked like lockstep messaging that came out at the beginning of the lockdowns about the importance of staying at home and the slogans that were repeated everywhere. There definitely was a a huge amount of effort that went into getting social consensus and villainizing those who would go against it, not just you know, ticketing a person here or there. And there were certainly some uh, some egregious tickets given for lack of social distancing, people playing ball in the, in the park and that kind of thing. And then probably some others that were um, more in line with the letter of the law and, you know, large gatherings or whatnot. But that there was certainly that strong effort to get everybody on board. And I think, and this is a, a term that we seem to be hearing more now, preference falsification. I think that there was a secondary effort to create the illusion of consensus, perhaps where there might not even have been a consensus, because certainly to get a group of people to change their minds about basic human practices like seeing people you love um, and gathering and so forth, to get them to change those almost on a dime in terms of how they live their lives, uh, I think the the propaganda and that effort to get people to see things in a certain way is is part of it. And I think then the other part of it was to create the illusion of social consensus around the idea that these laws needed to be obeyed so that even the people who might think, you know, I'm looking at the data and I'm not necessarily seeing it, but you know, well, everybody else seems to be on board with this. So maybe I just need to shut up and go along with the mob because there does seem to be this, you know, this unanimity of opinion about uh, the proper way to proceed. Yes. And that is actually one of the techniques of the propagandists. And again, speaks to the power of the people. It is always meant to marginalize dissent and make people think that they are fringe conspiracy theorists or what have you if they if they in any way dissent from the mainstream narrative on events like these and it's not obviously just something that's arisen with this pandemic it's something that's pertained our entire lives i think for me it came into crystal clear focus in the presumed war of terror of the past couple of decades which was the predominant narrative for the beginning of the 21st century and that functioned along these very same lines. And uh, a specific example that comes to mind is the introduction of the airport body scanners back uh, around 2008, uh, or whenever they were attempting to usher that in. Um, I do recall, for example, uh, the the types of news reports uh, that that, uh, station after station broadcast, where they were doing the the man-on-the-street interviews at the airports just after this had been instituted, uh, showing... Uh, you know, person A, person B, person C, just doing the little sound bites of, well, you know, it's it's a bit of a hassle, but it's to get the terrorists, so you know, I'm so I'm for it. Or, oh well, I d- I don't like the inconvenience, but whatever we have to do for security, I'll you know, I'll put I'll put up with it. And and this was the general tenor of the the interviews. And I remember seeing a uh, uh, I can't remember which there was an independent media outlet that was covering the the same issue at the same time and they had been at the same airport as one of these local news camera crews that they said were interviewing person after person after person 50 people 100 people whatever it was every single person saying this is outrageous this is stupid this is security theater i i don't want to put up with this but guess guess which three ones they choose they chose the three that are oh well you know it's it may be inconvenient but we'll put up with it so engineering consent by presenting the, in fact, what was the minority view as the majority view. And so the person watching the news goes, oh, well, everyone else thinks it's okay. Well, I guess maybe I should think it's okay. And in fact, that was even magnified a couple of years later. There was, I think it was 2010, there was a a opt-out day uh, planned for Thanksgiving uh, in the United States where uh, there was going to be a mass movement against these uh, invasive airport body scanners. Everyone was going to opt out. It was going to create huge delays and problems for the TSA during the peak uh, travel time, which would prove a point and make quite a demonstration. So what did they do? They did not give the public a chance to demonstrate and show this dissent. Instead, they turned the scanners off and waved people through that day. 
that day, they all turned off and they all just waved everyone through. No one got a chance to make a demonstration. And again, that shows that the public has the real power here, that when people on, on a mass scale revolt or dissent or do not comply, they can make a difference, which is why they don't even want to allow you the chance to show or demonstrate non-compliance, because that is, that is really the point at which you can demonstrate the emperor is not wearing any clothes. I remember that. I thought that was, well, devious and clever at the same time to to do that, to just, you know, walk out of the way and let that happen for that one uh, day. Um, I think what you mentioned about the, you know, the independent media doing their man on the street versus the uh, the uh, corporate press, as some call it, or the establishment media and their approach to that um, is is interesting and mm, leads me to what I wanted to talk about in terms of what's happened now on the internet with the explosion of independent voices and what is something that I've given a lot of thought to and been uh, a part of in some way is that we saw really a, a great opening of access to information so that the ability to create a fictional universe in which everybody was okay with going through the body scanners existed, that window closed. But then after it closed and after more and more people were able to get their information out there um, and, and share it, we've now seen moves on the part of the larger social media networks. There's really only a few dominant platforms out there to begin to tighten the reins on particular kinds of speech that fall outside of mainstream narratives. And I know that as someone who publishes things that are not necessarily in that, uh, you know, establishment orbit or within the, uh, the Overton window, as it may be at any particular moment, I'd imagine you've seen the kind of the closing or the deplatforming or demonetizing and how how has that affected what you do and what is your take on that movement well actually just on that note of the being outside the Overton window it's interesting because again I've been doing this for 13 years now it's interesting to note that some of the things that were very far outside of that Overton window when I first started talking about them are now very much within it and in fact that's a Another propagandistic technique that I almost marvel at, you're right, sometimes it's so devious um, uh, that it's almost genius, uh, that you can take something that was once literally laughingstock, verboten, conspiracy theory nonsense. You think the government is listening in on your phone calls? Oh, that's crazy. That was... It might be difficult for some people in the audience to even remember that mindset, but that mindset very much pertained when I first started doing the Corbett Report, and I was talking about certain things like Stellar Wind and these other NSA programs that were being revealed by whistleblowers long before Snowden came on the scene. Um, but it, that was crazy talk. I mean, even though it was documented and we, we, I could point to this and this and this and this and this, and these documented things that were coming out, uh, it's crazy talk. You, you think the government's listening? Uh, yeah. But then Snowden ap appears and the narrative shifts and suddenly it's like, of course they're listening. They're trying to protect us from the terrorists. <laughs> Which it, it I, is, it is, yeah, incredible. And especially in the last three years here, sorry to interrupt, oh, but like uh, how many times we've gone from something that was, labeled a crazy without evidence conspiracy theory to, oh yeah, well, we had to. Yeah. Or, and I, I've seen oh, this yeah, happen so many times that I, I recognize this as actually a propagandistic technique. The point is to deny, 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 deny until it is absolutely and completely undeniable, the self-evident reality for everyone, at which point the narrative changes from that could never happen to, of course that's happening. And that's happened on so many different things, like the, the NSA thing. I, I'm going to go out on a crazy conspiracy theorist limb and say that uh, the, the uh, spraying of the skies with the stratospheric aerosol injections is one of those things. Crazy conspiracy theorist, you're an idiot for even believing that could be possible until, oh, well, okay, Harvard is investigating it and we're doing some experiments on it. And then I, I'm just going to go out on a limb. 30 years from now, they're going to say, well, of course the government was secretly spraying people. It's okay. We've done that before. And in fact, they have done that Operation Sea Spray, for example, and other things like that, where they, they've literally sprayed the population with uh, chemicals to test what would happen with them um, and then re revealed it decades later, uh, pried out with Freedom of Information Act requests, decades after most of the people involved were long dead and buried. So this is, again, this is a propagandistic technique that is used, deny, 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 
Oh, of course it's happening. Um, I'm sorry. I think I deflected from your original question. I forget what... I, I got you off track. I was asking... Actually, this is, kind of gets it back to it. In the meantime, before it is admitted that this is the reality of what's mm. happening, there are movements to push those ideas to the margin and deplatform, demonetize right, people right. who are peddling these yeah. kinds of conspiracy theories. Right. Which goes back to the, the the other technique we were talking about, trying to marginalize assent, make it seem like you're fringe if you have any questions. If you believe something that's not in the mainstream, you must be crazy. Uh, and one way that they do that in the modern age is deplatforming, shadow banning, uh, view count throttling, all of these techniques that are now admittedly being used. Um, they're, they're coming out and admitting it now. It has been used for a while, but now they're finally coming out and saying, yes, we are trying to limit the spread of these dangerous ideas, i.e. anything that we don't like, or at least that we're being told not to like. So um, that that is something that I've definitely seen as a shift Again, I think these types of techniques have been used for a while, but they are coming out in the open and ultimately stating this now. For example, YouTube now outright saying even videos that aren't in any way violating our terms of content will be restricted or we will stop recommending them because we don't like what they're saying, essentially. Um, these types of things. Um, now, again, it is interesting to have watched the shift since I started doing this in 2007, where it was still at that time oh, you got that information from the internet? <laughs> you know, it was still a joke that actual information could exist on the internet. <laughs> but um, that that conversation has changed over the past decade. And in a way, I, I feel almost sad that it has changed because it was, it was great, actually, to exist in that universe uh, where I was reaching hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with, uh, with my productions at a time when the mainstream was completely discounting what was happening on the internet. YouTube and places like that were not looked at seriously at all by anyone in the establishment circle and inside the beltway and what have you. But I know I was reaching a lot of people, including, of course, a lot of young people who do primarily get their information online. And that, that, that reality, that shift from the old print and broadcast culture to the online culture was denied for a very long time by a lot of the mainstream dinosaurs whose salary depends on them denying that reality. Uh, unfortunately, now, uh, in the past few years, that has dramatically shifted. And uh, obviously, the, the establishment press is seeing what is happening online is a fundamental threat to their existence. So they're bringing the old corporate powers to bear to basically find new ways of enacting the same type of, if not monopoly, at least uh, near monopoly of information uh, that they enjoyed back in the old 20th century mass broadcast era. How do you see that playing out? What, you know, what chances do you think there are for decentralized sources of information or continuing to get messages out there that are not in line with uh, with mainstream thought, either on existing platforms by forcing their hands in some way, or somehow getting enough critical mass for alternative platforms. Right. Well, in fact, we don't have to speculate about it. It's not something we have to guess. Is there a possibility for this type of decentralization? No, these technologies are already here. It is already possible and it's already happening. There are a number of platforms that are coming up that are taking advantage of various types of decentralized technologies that are uncensorable. I mean, I suppose that's a contentious phrase because anything ultimately is censorable. If you just bomb every server in existence, I guess you can take down that information from, from the internet, but it would involve bombing every server in existence and every, every node on every network of every decentralized platform like IPFS and BitTorrent and what have you. There are a lot of different technological solutions to the problems of the centralization of information that we're seeing in these controlled platforms. But the problem, the real problem is if not the network effect itself, at least the perception of the network effect. I don't want to go to minds.com, everybody's on Facebook, or whatever the, the argument may be that um, anyone who's in this space has probably heard a million times, myself, no exception to that rule. Uh, and that that can be a problem because uh, here's, here's where my hope comes in. And it is based on hope because it has not eventuated yet. But I think that the real flowering of the World Wide Web took off and, and became what it was. It, became, it forced itself to be a mainstream because it was inherently useful and it was inherently liberating from an age where 
everything that you saw and heard and read was going to be from a handful of corporate media institutions into suddenly everybody has a page, everybody's doing this GeoCities or whatever it was back in the day in the Wild West of the internet. Uh, everyone was putting out their own material. And that was, that was, uh, that was fun. That was cool. That was, that was amazing. That was something new. Uh, that was interesting. That was not homogenized corporate bland information gruel, which was the sustenance that we had all had in our uh, in our childhood in one form or another. Well, in the similar sense, I think as the internet starts to be coal, or at least the internet as we know it, the social media platforms of Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, as that starts to corporatize and homogenize and become that same type of gruel that we were eating in the late 20th century, well, I think people are going to start to see, oh, there's a, there's something cool happening over here. This is where the cool people are going. It's going into this decentralized network or over here where you can actually say whatever you want. You can have your own space. You can do, you can play. You can ha have freedom again. And I think people will naturally gravitate towards that, which is why I think uh, my deepest concern about where this is heading and how it can be headed off, like the TSA opt-out day and just letting people pass through so they don't get a chance to demonstrate it, I think the uh, the the types of um, movement that's that's being popularized right now to well we have to make the the Twitter and Facebook we have to make them utilities so that they can be regulated so that. We, you know, I, I'm not even sure exactly what the ultimate plan is going to be, uh, because of course the devil is in the details. But something along the lines of, I guess, Twitter and Facebook and places like this, they'll have to give you an account, and they'll have to play by the whatever arbitrary rules they set, and therefore you can participate in public speech because you have a Facebook account, and you're guaranteed that Facebook account. We can en enshrine that in the Bill of Rights or the right the Charter of Rights and Freedoms or what have you, um, which to me is the exact opposite of where we need to go, which is decentralized and away from that, that in, in fact, in a way, enshrines these platforms as the place that everyone must go. Now, imagine imagine just a decade ago, if the government had been involved in, well, this is becoming the new public square, so we have to regulate this, so we have to make it so MySpace will have to give everyone an account. We can't let MySpace censor people because everyone's going to MySpace. MySpace is the most important social media place on the internet. And Dig, Dig.com, everyone goes to Dig.com. They have to, we're going to regulate it and we're going to put it in, enshrine it in the Constitution that Dig.com cannot censor the algorithm. Dig.com, MySpace, if you're of a certain age, you won't even have heard of these platforms at this point uh, because they are dinosaurs. They're gone because people migrated to something different. Well, in the same way, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, these places will be gone a decade from now if they are allowed to die the natural death that they will die by, by the actions they're taking. But if the government uh, yeah. comes along, if the government right, comes that along, enshrines it them and, and locks them in, in if place they in lock some ways. Them in, though, exactly. though I have to say, I was much more optimistic about those platforms being dethroned five years ago or seven years ago when I was working alongside some of those alternatives and working on my own alternatives. It seems like the challenge of dethroning them, even absent government lock-in, is 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 actually a very high bar at this point. In part because they already are state actors to some extent um, and, you know, and protected in some ways and their regulations being already written uh, with Facebook, of course, uh, their help. But, um, you know, but also because they just have billions of dollars and the network effects behind them to tweak their algorithms and their UI to make it as addictive and sticky as possible. Um, but I certainly think that the any kind of law to treat them like a public utility or platform risks locking them in in a way that makes it very, very much harder still to dethrone them. It's somewhat uh, astounding to me that um, even the, the Trump administration with so many options available to it to uh, take down Twitter or Facebook in some ways, maybe even maybe not Facebook, but certainly Twitter, um, instead of doing that, has spent energy bitching about it, essentially. When with, for example, like I could think of at least two ways fully within the Constitution they could um, they could 
essentially pull out the rug from uh, from Twitter, either by, you know, um, moving everything over from Twitter to some platform that promised not to censor. Just him moving alone would be such a huge avalanche of people that would also have to move over and and be encouraged to move over. Or, for example, they could have a law that says that all official government communication had to be done on platforms that didn't discriminate. Um, you know, we're, we're respecting the First Amendment and we don't want anyone who works for the government um, to be on a platform that excludes certain people or voices because that's not, you know, compatible. So you work for the government, you have to do this. That as well would, if they did that and didn't name any particular other platform but just opened it up and said – these are the rules from now on all government officials need to, you know, need to only only put their message on that. That would create a, a giant land rush for, you know, for open platforms that were able to accommodate hordes of new users and also maintain an anti-censorship stance. But that hasn't been the approach of the government either because they are not creative enough to think of that or because something else is going on in the background that makes it more politically palatable to just whine about and try to push around the existing tech platforms instead of give some wind under the sails of one specific one or a broad category of alternatives. Absolutely agreed. And again, yeah, I think that the real lie that there is a fundamental disconnect here between the government and these uh, social media platforms is given by the fact that someone like Donald Trump would not even move his personal Twitter account over to another platform. Um, because if there is anyone that could give the lie to the network effect excuse, oh, I have 50,000 followers on Twitter, I'm not going to just ditch them to go to some platform that has, you know, 30 people there. Okay, fair enough. But if Donald Trump moved his Twitter account over to Minds or whatever it was, uh, he, instantaneously that would become a viable alternative and a viable competitor to these virtual monopolies that have arisen um, and would prove that this is not set in stone and you do not need Twitter or any other particular platform to to communicate. Um, but oddly, we haven't seen that occur. And uh, I think Facebook is actually a good example of, of this because uh, 10 years ago, I know that the social pressure to be on Facebook was enormous. You're not on Facebook? That's weird. Five years ago, it was just standard. Everyone's got to have it. You got to do it for business. It's becoming to the point where I think it's now at least the, young, the youngins who are talking online. I do monitor their conversations. Now it's just a place for gram grandmas and, you know, to keep in touch with their family, I guess. But no one, kids don't take Facebook very seriously anymore. These things no, happen. they've they've They're all fast. they've all moved to Instagram. Yeah, uh, owned, exactly. Of course, they moved to Instagram. Facebook. They moved to Snapchat, <laughs> uh, TikTok. I, these are platforms. Mm -hmm. I don't even like. I'm not an old man per se, but I guess I am on internet or age because there are these platforms coming up. I don't even uh, understand TikTok. What do you, I don't even know what it is. I don't care. I don't want to be involved with it. But that's exactly the point. There will be a new generation coming up with TikTok that'll think that is the platform that must be enshrined in the Constitution. It's so important, man. Uh, again, I think uh, people's blinders on these issues uh, kind of limit their imagination when it comes to the possibilities that are out there. And and that's fine. But when that gets legislated into this or that path, you know, we must legislate this particular platform as being the platform everyone must have. That's when it gets sticky, because then whatever the biases of that particular moment in time on the Internet start to become enshrined and start to make those monopolies into something real. And unfortunately, I have another interview coming up in just a couple of minutes. So uh, can we wrap this up? That was uh, just where I was going with that. Um, uh, I think we'll I think we'll end it uh, there. Thank you so much, James, for coming on the uh, podcast. Where else can find people find more about your work? Uh, the best, uh, the, really the only place people should be going, CorbettReport.com. Go to my website itself, CorbettReport.com. The one-stop shop for all of my work, uh, audio, video, text, uh, 13 years worth of archives, literally thousands and thousands of hours of material there. I think there's a lot of good material, and it tends to be evergreen. Although I talk about news and current events, 
I think the topics that I talk about and the way that I talk about them tend to hold up over time. And a lot of my best work is even more relevant now than when I was first talking about it. So I, I do stand be beside it. And it's all there available completely for free. Um, people can support me if they want, but I, if people are new to my work, I never ask them to, sub to sign up for a membership right away. Dip your toe in, see if you like it. If you want to support it, then th that option is there. But everything is, is free, freely available to the public. Excellent. James, thanks for coming on The Filter. Thank you.